This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell for the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Rose Carlisle, welcome to Better Reading. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, so Rosie's coming to us via Auckland, New Zealand, and in this new world, we are podcasting via Zoom. Rose Carlisle is a lawyer and keen adventurer. She has crewed on scientific yachting expeditions to sub-Antarctica islands and lived aboard her own yacht in the Indian Ocean for a year, sailing it from Thailand to South Africa via the Seychelles. Rose was a Michael King writer in residence in 220. She lives in Auckland with her three children. The Girl in the Mirror, yay, is her debut, an addictive thriller about identical twins, greed, lust, secrets and deadly lies. Now, you know it's our book of the week this week and it has also been part of our preview program where we ask readers um, prior to publication to read 50 copies and I have not seen comments come back as we did with The Girl in the Mirror. Every single comment was you know, love it, fantastic, love it, fantastic. So congratulations, because that doesn't happen that often with a first book, as you probably know. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I feel really lucky that I've had such a great response from readers. You just don't know what's going to happen until it happens. So it's been wonderful. There's so much there in your life. I just want to know, firstly, what is this the first book you've written or have you been writing for a long time and this is the first book to be published? Well, it's a funny story actually because my sister and I both started writing novels just a few years ago. 2017 was when I started. You hadn't written before then? We'd probably written as much as aspiring writers do, you know, fan fiction in our teens and that sort of thing, but I'd really lost sight of it for a long time. So I, um, I mean... I, when I was six years old, I asked my godfather to get me a typewriter because I wanted to write a novel. And I remember that I got as far as chapter two. <laughs> uh, so obviously I always had that dream, but I had really lost sight of it. I got busy with children and I had a legal career and I did a lot of sailing and it had really sat on the back burner. And I had also been a little bit afraid that if I tried to write something, when I was quite young, that I wouldn't have had enough life experience to be able to produce um, something really true to life. So, I mean, it would have been hard to write The Girl in the Mirror if I hadn't been sailing and if I hadn't had experience of looking after young children and, you know, there's a few other things that are in there directly from my life. So it wasn't until 2017 that I started writing and I did start writing a different novel and my sister was also writing a novel. And then we both just got really stuck with those novels. 
Um, and I think it's probably a really good way to become an author is to write things and realise that they're not quite there and that it's easier to start again than it is to keep trying to fix something up. Do you know, I call it practice. You know, it's just like everything else. If you're learning the piano, if you're learning, um, you know, how to cook or whatever it is, there is an element of practice, isn't there? Yeah, and the funny thing about writing is that we can't really see that until we start. So there's not many people who watch an Olympic figure skater and think, oh, well, you know, if I just feel inspired and put some skates on, I'll be able to glide out onto the ice and do triple somersaults like her. <laughs> you know, but we, we do think that if we just had the inspiration strike us, then our pen would almost start moving by itself and we would produce something just as good as people who've been writing for years. And then, of course, you sit down to write and you discover that that is not the case and that there is, there is a craft behind it, there is a technique behind it, you know, and just as the figure skater has done lots of boring practice and tried out routines that she decided she didn't like and had to give up and change, Writers have to do that too. Yeah, maybe we think because we can write a text or write an email <laughs> or write a message on a post-it note that that's the beginning of writing, but, you know, it completely is not. Yeah, I think that's what it is actually, that we can all write short things. And probably when we were at school too, our teachers just wrote lovely story at the end of all our efforts. So we, we didn't, not many people got taught at school in a critical way, you know. no. You've, you've written the story incorrectly and you need to polish it. Now tell me, I want to go right back to the beginning. So where did you grow up? How, did you, how was it that, you know, um, you became, is it a lawyer and then doing scientific exhibitions? So start from the beginning. Yeah, so I grew up in West Auckland, although I spent a lot of time as a young child at Port Waikato, which is a really wild West Coast beach at the mouth of the Waikato River. Um, and I think that had a big effect on my sort of deep inner soul in terms of feeling like I was really connected with the ocean. And I went to university in Dunedin, so I went to the University of Otago, and I got a law degree. And why law? Well, I, yeah, I almost feel like it was a bit of an accident, really. I had wanted to go to med school, and then I got quite nervous about whether that was the thing for me because it's such a commitment. So I put that off for a year when I got I got accepted into med school and I was 17 and it felt a little mm. bit ridiculous to mm. be explaining your life away at that age. So I put it off for a year and then I didn't go back to it and instead I did law, which felt like something, I really think that law is quite a good career to be able to dip in and out of and not necessarily spend your entire life doing it. So I practiced law for about seven years, starting when I was 21, so I was still quite young. What kind of law were you doing? Um, it was corporate law on the whole, yeah. so law firm and that uh, quite high pressure in terms of you're either aiming to be a partner or you should be thinking about leaving. Yeah. Um, and then I became a barrister when I had children. But by the time I had three children, it just wasn't really working for me anymore because... Wow, so you'd gone really quite into your career. I mean, you know, going from a lawyer to, bar to a barrister, that's commitment, isn't it? Yeah, actually being a barrister was, was easier than being in one of those really high-powered law firms. So, it's, you know, once I had children, that was a slightly more balanced approach to my life. But I was still, I was married to a lawyer as well. So 
and he was working ridiculous hours. And then uh, my third child was born very premature, which is something that I sort of wrote uh, as in the background of the girl in the mirror, you know, this concept of having an early baby. And I mean, I didn't have to do any research about that. No, you'd lived it. Um, but that also made life quite difficult for me. And I ended up becoming a stay-at-home mum just because she needed to have someone at home, really. She had some immune compromise issues, which we all know about now with COVID, of course. Um, so I was at home with her and that was when uh, we started to take the kids sailing quite a lot. And one of the big trips that we made was a trip across the Indian Ocean. So talk to me about that. Wow. I mean, how do you even get organised to do that? And how long were you away? Because I think, I mean, obviously, the big career is formative. Having three children is formative. But also doing something like that, I mean, it's really formative, isn't it? Not just for you, but for your children as well. Well, getting organised for a, a big sailing trip is a nightmare, you know. It's a little bit like if you really had to do panic buying for, you know, lockdown. It is a little bit like lockdown in the sense that you really do have to have your food organised because you need about two months of food on board at any one time and you need spares of all your equipment and, and yeah, you need to move your whole life aboard and it's like running your own city on a boat. You know, you've got to generate your own power and have your own water supply and just be completely self-sufficient. So, so, so was it a fairly big boat? I mean, you know, four, five people on a boat. I mean, that's a lot of people to be sailing. Yeah, it's funny. We met a lot of families who are sailing. And, and I mean, it's however big your boat is, it's smaller than a small apartment. So, yeah, <laughs> yeah of course. Her, her, her bedroom was really just a bed that was sort of above couch in the living room um you know the main the main area of the boat just had a sort of bunk behind it where her little bed was and she had a a, a lee cloth which operates as a kind of curtain for privacy but also stops you falling out when you're at sea um, so yeah bunks on a boat tend to need that and had you sailed on shorter trips before yeah so uh, we we'd been sailing before we had kids on a much yeah. smaller had a half share in and then we started sailing with the children when they were really quite small I think my daughter Florence was one or two years old and we would go away for January Um, and then we did a trip where we actually circumnavigated New Zealand when they were eight ten and twelve so um, that was that was the first time that we took them away on sort of five nights at sea in a row and they coped with that pretty well. So we decided we could cross an ocean with them. So the kids were 9, 11 and 13 when we wow. got yeah. off across the Indian Ocean. So tell me, how long was it? It took a year because wow. I, I know that if you're doing a big solo ocean race, you just race non-stop across the ocean. But for us, the whole point was to visit the countries along the way. And the Indian Ocean is full of the most amazingly diverse and different cultures and landscapes. So although in the novel, the trip is, it's a big, long, uh, non-stop trip that the um, character makes, in 
reality, we stopped everywhere that we could along the way and, and often wished we could stay for longer. So it took us a, a year to get across. Yeah. Any highlights, of the, any stories you want to tell me about the trip? Like did kids get sick? Did anyone fall overboard? I mean, it's an adventure, right? Things happen. Yeah, falling overboard is the worst nightmare, so definitely not. Um, yeah. I mean, it's interesting. There are times when you're sailing when you actually can, if there's absolutely no wind and the sea is very calm, you can stop the boat and you can jump off and swim in the middle of the ocean. And that's one of the most amazing experiences in my life. I've done that in the Tasman Sea and in the Bay of Bengal and you know, just a handful of times in my life because you just have that sense of being at the absolute extreme of human existence. So you would always keep one person on board in case the wind suddenly starts blowing the boat away, which can happen in incredibly light air. And you only ever go in for a few minutes because there's stories that a shark hears you come in and starts heading towards you the moment you do. So you don't want to be in. (laughs) We would never jump in, actually. We would slip in. But despite all of that, it's it's worth it to me because it's something that you never forget. You always remember that feeling of just being, it's like being in outer space. It's just amazing. It is like that, isn't it? Because you're really in the middle of nowhere. Tell me what an ordinary day looked like because were you homeschooling on that boat? Yeah, so more lockdown analogies, yeah, because it's yeah. like <laughs> lockdown when, when you're actually at sea, of course, no daily walk and yes we were homeschooling as well so it's interesting that life is quite busy even though it looks people have an image that you're just sort of lying on deck sipping cocktails but actually there's constant boat maintenance there's a joke that sailing around the world is just a way to do boat maintenance in beautiful locations (laughs) so there isn't really a typical day because when you're actually on an ocean passage you're just focused on really getting enough sleep and making sure everyone gets a nice meal you still cook good food on a passage I would never go to sea and just eat out of cans so that's really the the main focus and of course doing your watch which there's always somebody on watch so that sort of dominates the, the daily routine someone being awake all day and all night but when you're anchored somewhere then your experiences are as varied as the countries that you're in. So, for example, in um, in Sri Lanka, we were in a city known as Gala, where we could just go and have beautiful food and and see all the sounds and sights of Sri Lanka. Whereas, when we were at the Chagos Archipelago, which is completely uninhabited, and it's just a tiny few islands in the middle of the ocean, we would just going to shore and it was just us and the, you know, the cra- the coconut crabs and the fish and the sharks and the turtles and that was all that there was. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. 
That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. How long did you stay in any one country? We would often be in a country for a month because that would be how long you're allowed to stay. So Chagos Archipelago, for example, is, is administered by the British government and they only allow you to come for four weeks. And... Um, same with India and Sri Lanka and the Maldives. Yeah. A month in each country, that was pretty standard. So do you, do you think, I mean, were you writing on that boat or do you think, I mean, you were busy, obviously, as you say, they're very busy days, but it, it, did the thought or idea of, you know, the daydreaming, did that start to happen then or that wasn't really what you were thinking about? No, I had no idea I was going to write a novel that was going to incorporate that trope. I right. did it's ironic, actually. I thought about I'd like to write a sort of non-fiction travel writing about all the different places that we went to. But, I mean, this just shows that you can never plan the future because I thought there can't be much of a market for travel writing when everybody can travel so easily these days. And that's <laughs> change, is it? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> I go to these places themselves rather than reading travel. But I think... You know, that's now changed and, and mm. perhaps want to read it. But even though The Girl in the Mirror is fiction, I feel as though that's maybe part of its appeal. You can imagine these places. And I've been quite through to life with places like the Seychelles. So let's fast forward um, and you've decided to write a book and you've had a couple of goes. So tell me about this. How did you know you had something? Like what was the feeling of writing that made you think, okay, this is going well, this is, I think this is going to be a book. I mean, no way would you have known what kind of book it was going to be, but you were feeling comfortable with the process. Talk to me about that when that happened. This is a good story, actually, because I was writing my first novel. I'd written it for a creative writing course and I had to submit it in five more days. So this was October 2017. And I was having lunch with my sister and she said, um, we were, th we were discussing how we felt really stuck with these novels and even though I had to submit it for the course, I didn't really feel that great about it anymore. And she said, my next novel is going to be about twins. And I said, oh, me too. That's what I want to talk about. What, what happens in your novel? And she told me something and I said, oh, yeah, wouldn't that be great? And then what if we did this? What a great twist. Oh, how about if this happened? And we just, the ideas just poured out of us and within an hour or less, we had the bones of the plot of The Girl in the Mirror. We had the title, we had, we didn't have the characters' names, but we had, we had some great um, plans for it. And um, then my aunt, who was there as well, said to us, well, which one of you girls is going to write this story? And I just felt horrified. I thought... I don't want to give this up. And then my sister Maddie said, uh, Rose is going to write it and I'm going to help her. And um, that was just such a great moment because I just felt such excitement and joy for the story. It was like love at first sight. And I kept thinking, well, I can't think about this for five days. I've got to go home and finish that other novel. <laughs> um, and then I was driving home from the lunch and 
um, Maddie rang me just as I was driving over the Harbour Bridge and she said two things to me. The first thing she said is, I think this book's going to go all the way. It's going to end up in Hollywood. It's just fantastic. It's going to be huge. So she was really, really excited about it and believed in it right from the start. And then the second thing she said was, I've decided what you should call your main character. And I had actually, between leaving the lunch and when she rang, decided to call my main character Iris. So I just thought I would politely hear her out. And I said, oh, what do you think? And she said, Iris. Oh, God. (laughs) And I just felt, I mean, I'm not superstitious at all, but I just had an amazing feeling of, oh, this is meant to be. This is, you know, everything is falling into place. We've got the title. We've got the main character's name. It was spooky. So, um, yeah, five more days finishing the old novel, submitting it. And then I, everyone else who had done that course with me said, oh, I'm going to take the summer off and maybe start writing again next year. Well, I took about two or three days off and then I just couldn't stop myself anymore. I just had to start writing. And the book was written within six months. You were on a roll. Yeah, I was absolutely driven. And I mean, there were parts that I, that I found really hard and I remember I was stuck at, I think, the beginning of Chapter 18 for a week. <laughs> um, but most of the time it was, I was just really driven. Mm-hmm. It was a really hard time in my life to write. I was um, newly separated and I had four teenagers by then because my um, late brother's son had come to live with me as well. And I had started working again in the law, so I was getting up early in the morning to write. Yeah, wow. But it was just, I was just felt unstoppable. So let me clarify. So with you and your sister, was it a co-writing exercise or not? After that, you just went ahead and wrote. And I guess you would send her chapters? Would that be what if? Yeah, you could describe her as, an, as a sort of editor. editor before it went to the publishers. But um, she did it more than I think your usual editor would do because I would also phone her and say, oh, you know, I'm stuck on this scene or let's can we brainstorm what should happen next so she was Mm. deeply involved but I actually wrote the sentences Mm. so I'm just imagining right you know in the future and the no COVID future that you two are walking you're at the Academy Awards (laughs) right and would it be you and her walking down the red carpet do you think well, that would, that would be a, a dream. There's no yeah. way not without her, yeah. yeah. I mean, with COVID, we don't know what our future no. is. No, but you've got a dream, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. yeah. And the thing is that the whole time I was writing, of course, part of you wants to believe in the dream and the other part thinks, well, you know, every writer dreams of it going international and all that sort of thing. Really, what I wanted was just to be published. I just yeah. wanted to be published and I just because you can't really imagine having lots of readers you can't you can only really imagine one reader so I just sort of had in my mind as I wrote one person one imaginary reader who loved the book and to me that's the most special thing of all so just this morning my sister got in touch to say that her sister-in-law's friend had said oh it's the best book I've ever read and I thought that's the best news I've had about the book. 
Since I'm hearing that a lot. I'm seeing a lot in, in our comments on Facebook. I'm hearing that a lot. I mean, there is a lot of groundswell for this. I mean, it's, it's been, a, it's a huge debut launch, which is very, very rare. I mean, you know, and also just imagine how many people like you and your sister sit in a cafe or a restaurant or whatever and say, I'm going to write a bestseller and it never sees the light of day. I mean, those conversations probably happen 10 million times a day and very occasionally will one happen and that's you. Well, the funny thing is I, I never set out to write a bestseller. I mean, we did think, oh, this story is going to be popular. But do you know what I mean? It didn't come in that order. Like we didn't say, let's write a really popular story. What would that be? Because I think that's the wrong way to go about it. I think you've got to say, what's the story that comes out of my heart? And then if you, if you think, oh, that doesn't sound popular enough, I won't write that or write something else, then you're probably going to, fail but oh without a doubt and I think too even when you're writing genre fiction you know like this is you still it has, still has to be authentic you know there still have to be characters and 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 scenes and and landscape and whatever that is actually true and authentic because that adds to the richness of the story yeah, and I think that's probably why some books that, you know, even have quite a, a, a negative reaction or a backlash, but if you talk to a true fan of that book, that book spoke to their heart. And if you talk to the author, the book came from their heart and that's why they've got these incredibly devoted fans, even if there are other people who don't understand the book's success. I absolutely and agree with that. There's going to be some people who don't understand, who don't, it's not for them. No book is for everyone. But That's right. your own story, no matter how unique and quirky it seems and you think, who's going to like this, then as long as you're true to yourself, you will find that reader, I think. Mm. So we've got to finish up shortly, but I just want to know how you got published. How is it that you got that book into the hands of the publisher? <laughs> yeah, well, I, I mean, I feel like if I can do it, anyone can do it because I didn't have any connections really I just sent it it sat on the slush pile so I sent it to the New Zealand branch of Allen and Unwin which I've since learned doesn't really publish much fiction at all but luckily I didn't know that and it sat there for a couple of months and I was quite nervous about sending a little follow-up email to say you know has any progress been made but luckily I did because that's when uh, Jenny Helen in the New Zealand office read the first page and obviously liked that first page. So she, quite soon after that, she sent it over to the Sydney office. And um, I, I, re I found out later that within three days of someone reading it, they'd made me an offer. So it's like, no, <laughs> and then suddenly it's really fast. Um, so, and I only ever sent it to Alan and I'm, I didn't send it to anyone else. And that's probably not the right way to go about it. You know, I hear people say that you have to send it to, I don't know, dozens of publishers in the hope that one of them bites. But they were my dream publisher. I, I had heard so many good things about them. You but know, I think one of the most important things, other than a, having a really good story, uh, because these, you know, your story is not just a fluke. I mean, I, and I know this, I've worked in the business for so long, you can put so much behind a book in terms of marketing. You can put so much behind a book in terms of, you know, the publisher, you know, um, talking about it. But the book has to hold its own. 
The story has to hold its own. So that's what's happened here. But I think that is obviously the most important thing. But the other thing I think is really important is you need to be paired up with the right publisher. I think that relationship between editor and publisher and author is very important as well. So if you had an idea in your mind then of who you wanted, that was probably the right way to go. Yeah, well, I did and I didn't. I mean, all I knew was that people kept saying that Alan and Unwin are great and they're the best, but I didn't mm. know the names of any of the people who were going to end up working with me. I mean, obviously, I, I had, didn't know anything about um, Jane Paul Freeman, who is my publisher and who's in Sydney, and I've since learned that she is very, very highly regarded. But at the Very time, highly regarded, and she's also a friend of mine. Oh, right. I love yeah. it. Yeah. yeah. Well, for me, that was just the name on an email and I went and Googled her. You don't actually find much on Google. Um, but I've been incredibly lucky. I've just found the editorial team amazing. And then having the Americans buy the book pre-publication, I was able to get HarperCollins' input on the book as well, which was, I just really welcomed that. I never felt precious about the book or didn't, you know, wanted to push back on there. Yeah. It does make me laugh that here you are, you knew nothing about, you know, publishing and you knew nothing about how to get published and you end up with Jane Pohl from it at Allen and Unwin. <laughs> I don't know whether that's just good luck. I mean, I think that just shows that if I can do it, anyone can do it. I mean, you know, I live in New Zealand and, um, I yeah, it's sat on the slush pile and I think that's kind of a nice part of the story. And it is I, a really good part of the story, but just remember this, that it has to be, you know, as I just said earlier, the story has to hold its own. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure... you can't fool a reader. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. It's, that, it's no good being a celebrity and writing a, writing a bad novel. Yeah. No. No, that doesn't work. All right, Rose, we've got to go. I mean, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I am so happy for you. Congratulations. I've got the vision of you and your sister walking down the red carpet at the Academy Awards. <laughs> so we'll see what happens in the future. Meanwhile, this book is going to sell its socks off. Um, it's called The Girl in the Mirror. And again, congratulations. Thank you so much. It's been really lovely to talk. If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere, or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBook Store. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library, and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of ebooks and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape, imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere. Everywhere. up. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.